You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Jamie Goldman Marseille is an elementary school teacher, a motivational speaker, an author of two books, and has been featured in a highly acclaimed Adidas footwear TV commercial. At the age of 19, she was driving home from a ski trip in New Mexico with her friend Lisa when they found themselves on a deserted Arizona logging road in a blinding snowstorm. After sliding into a snowbank, the women found themselves stranded and alone, huddling for warmth in their stalled, now buried vehicle while the storm raged on. Rescued, but severely frostbitten, Jamie ultimately had to have both of her legs amputated below the knee. But relearning how to walk again with her prosthetics was not enough. In 1996, after watching the Paralympic Games, Jamie wanted to become an elite runner herself, earning numerous world records and gold medals. Jamie teaches others how to use the power of mind, body, and spirit as a catalyst to conquer adversity and reach new levels of well-being and happiness. I caught up with her at a recent Abilities Expo. So, Jamie, thank you for being my guest today. Thanks for having me, Sean. So, I think we just, let's start at the beginning and talk a little bit about um, maybe how sports has been a part of your life, either growing up or, you know, like prior to injury. Well, that's kind of funny you want to start there because I'm guilty of not having sports a part of my life or realizing how important exercise is until I lost my feet. Okay. And I think that's, in some cases, many of our athletes, uh, that, that's how, you know, adaptive sports was a, a big part of, uh, that's how they got into sports to begin with. So, um, and then, uh, so you weren't active in sports growing up at all? No, I was not. I grew up in Arizona and ironically living in the desert, the one activity I did participate in, I skied. You know, people kind of look at me like I'm crazy, but I'm not. I, I really, there's some mountains in Arizona. Go take a look. <laughs> yeah, you get uh, even people would think about that in California. People think about that in New Mexico. But yep, there are some mountains that you could ski. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I skied growing up, and and life was good. And I was a sophomore in college, and just an undeclared major, just enjoying my friends and my apartment, and just what life had to offer. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, my girlfriend and I got trapped in our car for 11 days. We were driving home from a ski trip uh, on December 23rd, 1987. Mm -hmm. And when we crossed the border from New Mexico back into Arizona, we wound up taking a wrong turn Mm. and not knowing it at the time. So after driving a couple more hours, we realized we were not where we were supposed to be. So we stopped at a gas station to purchase a map. They did not have a map for purchase, but the gentleman, the attendant in the gas station explained to us with a wall map where we were. And at the time, my girlfriend had to work that day. So we're under a little bit of pressure. We needed to get home. So he explained to us where we were and we actually, how we had taken the wrong turn. And he suggested taking a back route, Route 273, Mm. that's right behind the Sunrise Ski Resort and it'll get us home quicker. So Lisa and I looked at each other, said, okay, you know, we're off. And we came onto Route, we came up to 73. Mm -hmm. And what we came upon after we are found after being in the car for 11 days is when he said go to route 73 he meant go to number two number seven number three Hmm. and we understood it as go to Mm to 73 
So when we left the gas station, there was Route 73. Mm -hmm. So we turned upon it. And unfortunately, the car wound up, a snowstorm had started, and the car hit a snowbank and skidded and got stuck in the snow. Yeah. And so uh, obviously after that 11-day period, um, when when did you have to... When did the amputation kind of decisions take place? And- yeah, I, I even remember at the time being in the car with Lisa, maybe even suggesting frostbite, not knowing what it was, mm-hmm. but we knew that there was some damage to our feet and to our fingers. Mm-hmm. And when we were found on January 2nd, 1988, it, excuse me, when we were found on January 2nd, 1988, that's when the beginning of our future started, mm-hmm. not knowing what damage had taken place. Mm -hmm. Uh, After we were found, a man and his son were snowmobiling in the area. Mm. So we were very fortunate that they came upon our car and saved our life. Yeah, when they did, right. Right. And when they found us, we, Lisa and I both had frostbite on all our extremities. So our feet, ears, nose, and hands. And we were taken to a small hospital up in northern Arizona where we were lost. Mm -hmm. And then we were back down on a helicopter to the Scottsdale Memorial Hospital. And right away, they started talking to my parents about amputation. I was 19, so ultimately, it had to be my decision. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize they were already talking about it. Because I just thought, oh, everything's cold, and it's just going to warm up, and it's going to be fine. And I was a young 19-year-old girl, (laughs) you know, a little bit on the ignorant side in regards to health. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize the intensity of the damage that had been done to my nerves and my tissues. So after being in the hospital for about a week to 10 days, everything came back by my feet. So my feet actually contracted an infection called gangrene. And at that time, that's when the doctors came to me and said, it's not an emergency, but it's slowly becoming one. And if you agree to this surgery, we can amputate about five to six inches below your knee and you'll be able to do anything you want. And remember, this was 32 years ago. So people didn't have these amazing Oser cheetah legs. Um, High heel feet were not even part of the equation. Mm -hmm. Everybody wore pretty much a satch foot, which was an abbreviation for a stiff ankle cushion heel foot. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I asked some questions before I agreed to the amputation. And those questions were, can I get married? Can I go skiing again? Can I have children again? Can I go back to school? Can I have a job? All these insecurities that I didn't know about. And I think at that time, I'm a little embarrassed to show and admit that I was a little bit ignorant in regards to people with adaptive abilities and how it worked and what do you do? And I'll never forget my surgeons coming in and showing me a video of a woman who had a one below knee amputation and donning her prosthetic, taking it off, taking it on. And I looked at them and said, I'm never taking these legs off. I'm going to sleep in them. And, and that's what they did. They giggled and they said, okay, you do what you need to do. And as any active user would tell you, what's the first thing you want to do is take those prosthetics off. Mm -hmm. You know, when I go around and I give presentations, especially with children, I ask them, what do you do when you get home from school? And, oh, take our shoes off and stretch our toes. And I said, that's exactly how I feel. When I get home, if I take my prosthetic off, it's just, it's an extension of me, but it's nice to release it and and massage my limb or or adapt to whatever I've been going through in that day. And rest them and relax. Rest and relax. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I don't think that, I don't necessarily think that ignorance was the reason why for those questions. I mean, those were legitimate, those are legitimate questions when you come into a new scenario, right? Thank you. Yeah. Maybe we'll cut out the word ignorance and, (laughs) and, you know, I think it was maybe some 
being gullible, yeah. being naive, and, and uneducated, the and the yeah. exactly the unknown of what my future held, and and, and fear. Yeah. You know, would I able meet someone? Would I able be able? Would I ever be able to be in an intimate relationship? I mean, I was 19 years old. Right. You know, I have these really great little, as we joked about my chicken legs. I mean, I had small little calves, and you know, it was it was an extension of me. But at the time, I had agreed to the amputation because I wanted to get back to my life. Right. I wanted to go back to college, and I knew if I didn't agree, that the infection would start attacking other parts of my body. So you asked that, those questions, and what what were the answers? What were the responses? Uh, yes, 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 and more yes. That's what you want to hear, right? Exactly. And I'm so fortunate that my first surgeon and my first prosthetist 32 years ago had already worked together for 10 years. Mm. So it was a very unique situation where the prosthetist, who's someone that's going to make my legs, he's not a surgeon, but he was in the surgery. And he was helping the surgeon because I actually had two surgeons when I had my amputations mm -hmm. to save time and to hopefully not lose as much blood. Oh, wow. So okay. there was two different surgeons that amputated each side. Wow. Yeah. And, mm. and I think I was very, very blessed from the beginning that I had people with prior experience working with amputees and knowing what I could and could not do. Wow. And so from that moment on, when, how soon was it before you realized or were introduced to an adaptive sport? Oh yeah. That's a great question. Um, uh, my surgery was in 1988, January, and I was released out of the hospital after 49 days. So late February, I was able to go home mm -hmm. and I just walked. I kept a wheelchair in my home for almost three years. I used a walker on a regular basis for six months and I started going to the gym. So I really wasn't introduced to adaptive sports for a few years, okay. but I did know from my physical therapist in the hospital, they told me how important it was for me to embrace exercise. Mm -hmm. And I was not happy with that because I was a young child that didn't like exercise. <laughs> I wanted to jump on my skis and go fast down a mountain <laughs> and that was it. And I needed to understand the importance of weight training to help my body balance, to mm -hmm. really make up what I was missing by having, you know, uh, about half of my calf and all of my feet taken on both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so when did you start getting into running? Yeah. So I moved to California in 1993. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I think I was 24, 25 years old. So it had been about five years since my accident. And I was on my parents' health insurance. And by moving to California, I had to grow up. I didn't have mom to protect me anymore, which was a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I had to find a job, meaning that gave me health insurance because it was really important that I had support with my prosthetics. And my first prosthetist, who is Carlos Sombrano, who's still here in California. Mm -hmm. My first prosthetist that I found in California was Carlos Sombrano, and it was 1996. And he, or excuse me, it was night. I moved in summer. So it was probably about 93, 94. And he wound up sharing with me the word Paralympics. And I never heard it before. Since my amputation, I'd gone back and gone skiing once and it went well, but I never thought about running because it wasn't something I ever did when I had my born God-given legs. Mm -hmm. it, it just wasn't something that I was interested in. <laughs> and so Carlos showed me video and at the time, the Paralympics in our country were coming up in Atlanta, Georgia. Right, that's true. So, yeah, because right it was in 90, US, yeah. yeah, in 96, they were in Georgia. 
And so he shared all this information with me and I was just amazed enthralled, excited. I was like, what? I didn't even know this whole world existed. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate with the help of my grandma and Carlos's support. I was able to get my first pair of running legs and I've really never looked back since. (laughs) It's, it's changed everything for me. It's given me a sense of satisfaction. It's given me a level of confidence that I couldn't have even imagined if I didn't have. Mm -hmm. And it's given me also support to protect myself. Because before I met my husband, I was a young woman living in the world and I never ran with my prosthetics. Mm. And if you're ever in an emergency situation, you don't want that to be the first time you're going to try and run. Right. So, yeah, it really gave me confidence to go back in the world, even though I'd been going to the gym for a few years, but learning to run, I took it to a whole new level. So besides some of those intangible benefits of running, what else has running allowed you to do? Like where, where have you been able to, to travel. run and oh. travel and compete and those types of activities? Yeah. yeah. Those are some pretty fantastic questions. Because when I first learned to run, I fell down. Mm-hmm. And I cried and I screamed and I was frustrated. And I had a great friend who had ran track in high school and he supported me and he really pushed me to never give up. So when I first started to run, we started on the grass mm-hmm. because the track really kind of ate up my skin in the beginning mm-hmm. and I needed mm-hmm. to create balance. Being a bilateral amputee and then using specific running blades, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And working with him, I was invited from Disabled Sports USA to participate with the Paralympic team. So this was 1997. Mm -hmm. So in anticipation of making the 2000 Paralympic Games in Sydney, Australia. Mm -hmm. So I ran with the United States team and I traveled across the world. It was just amazing. I went to Germany. I was invited to Japan, Spain, England, um, Connecticut, uh, different parts of California. Mm -hmm. And it really just opened up this whole world to me that I never knew existed. And so 2000 came around and, you know, how did that go? And Well, 2000 came around and someone younger and faster mm-hmm. took my spot. But, you know, it's not that she took my spot. It's the rankings were very different then. Mm-hmm. So you almost were competing against wheelchair athletes because there was oh, only right. there was only so many spots for the Paralympic team. Mm-hmm. So how they ranked you was according to your A, B standards and then how close you were, or how much you went over that standard. And then that earned you a spot. Okay. So I want to say in the 2000 Paralympics, I think there was only 10 amputees that went it was a majority of wheelchair athletes and and that's just that's just how the sport worked at that moment so I was definitely deflated upset I mean I had hired a coach I had worked with actually trained with Olympic athletes that were Mm -hmm. going for the Olympics that year so I really dedicated quite a few years to this but I figured you know when one door closes there's something that needs to be opened Mm -hmm. and at that time I switched to distance running And so in 2001, I became the first woman of my disability class to finish a half marathon. Mm -hmm. And that was the Kona half marathon in Hawaii. So that was a pretty wonderful opportunity. And I also met the man of my dreams in 1997. This is the real test, right? This is the real. I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on. Better get that right. Yeah, exactly. 1997. Um, I do know we got married in 2001. So I'm, you know, doing those, crunching those numbers in my head. Yeah. And uh, so 2001 was a really amazing year for me. I ran my first half marathon. 
Now let's do it in sequence. I got married in April, uh-huh. ran my first half marathon, and then published my autobiography, which came out in October 2001. A little bit of a side note is we were all consumed from 9-11. Right. That's I true. mean, I think yeah. you and I can Bobby both close our eyes and know exactly where we were when Indeed. we when we saw those planes hit the tower. And um, so here I am working with Simon and Schuster, this huge publisher, and they're sending me on a book tour the second and third week of October. And I'm on my knees begging them, please don't. Nobody's coming. Right. Like my book is so powerful and it has such an important message, but the world, our country, we are still trying to find ourselves. We are still trying yeah. to unite together. We were in a different place, weren't we? We, we yeah. all were. And so unfortunately the book, they still pushed me out on this tour and I went and, you know, uh, the book really got lost in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I love when I meet people and they're like, I found your book and I read it in 24 hours and I'm like, yay. Cause that's what it, it is. It's, it's just this heartfelt story as if you were sitting down talking to me. And, and what, what possessed you, I guess, to want to write a book? That's a great question. I'm um, someone else was approached me. Uh-huh. I was actually approached about doing a movie in regards to my life and Mm. what was it like being trapped in a car for 11 days and losing your legs at 19 and then going to become a runner. And the movie didn't fall through, but I had, they introduced me to a lawyer. And so William Jacobson wound up taking me under his wing and he had a very good friend that was a book agent in New York Mm. and it, it all happened so fast. And I was very nervous because I'm much more analytical and I like to crunch numbers. So am I going to use I, you, we, you know, who's going to write this? As the first person. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, I mean, being an elementary school teacher now, I understand uh-huh. all that, but you know, who's going to write this? And sure enough, they were fantastic. And they explained to me that we would hire a writer. And I met this woman, Andrea Kagan, and I like to say she's one of my soul sisters. We sat down and remember, this is 2001. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of computer use, not like it is now. I mean, she we would sit and interview me like we are doing right. today. Yep. And then she'd go home and type it all up and physically mail me the manuscript. <laughs> and I'd take a pen and I would read it. And that's how we did a lot of our edits. And mark it up and edits yes. and add things. Yes. Yeah, A dying art. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. And for those that, you know, love communications, you know, you want to hold, I want to hold on to as much of that as possible. I do too. I'm a huge reader. I love to hold a book in my hands. I still have not migrated into the iPad or the Kindle or I I like to hold a book. You know, there's something about it for me. And you followed that up obviously with a children's book as well. I did. I did. Yeah. So in 2001, um, with the support of Andrea, we wrote my autobiography, uh, Jamie Goldman up and running. Mm Mm-hmm. And then my husband and I were married and usually kids come along at one point. So we had my first child in 2004, Mm -hmm. my son, and then I had my daughter in 2006. And right after she was born, I was approached by Claire Daniels to write a children's book. Mm. And it was the same situation. Well, what is this? What's it about? And I'm not a writer. And she said, oh, no, I'm going to write it and I'll put it together. And my ultimate goal is to sell it to a textbook company because I really believe there's a lot to be said for children. Mm -hmm. And I loved it because, you know, that came out in 2008. And now 12 years later, I'm an elementary school teacher. Oh, my. Yeah. So it was really great how it all came full circle for me. Indeed. And 
Uh, you mentioned that this book is available or is used in some curriculum in, in some schools, correct? Yeah, the children's book is called uh, Running Free, the mm-hmm. Jamie Goldman story, and it is used through the Rigby Literacy Department. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly East Coast, but even today I still get emails from teachers. I've Skyped with classrooms before. Awesome. Yeah, and so it's really great. It's a third grade reader, so it has an index, a glossary, a timeline, and you know, hopefully it takes away that fear component for children that you know, just because I'm an amputee, you could be my friend. Mm-hmm. Your body parts are not going to fall you can, off. You can talk to me. Exactly. You can me. <laughs> exactly. I think it's same like, you know, someone in a wheelchair, if you haven't been around someone, mm-hmm. you're just so unsure what to do. And it's like, just smile and say hi. And it's funny that you mentioned third grade because my wife's a third grade teacher. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I'll make sure she, she knows about the book. She, yeah. may, she may know about the book already. But. Yeah. And so what, what else is on the docket? What are, what, besides obviously teaching, in what grade do you teach? I teach fourth grade. Do you? Okay. Yeah. So I've taught third grade and I taught kinder and now I'm in fourth grade. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's been a nice change. Um, a lot of people wonder why I left kinder and I'm like, cause I'd rather go home and grade papers <laughs> than be exhausted physically all day long. I love teaching kindergarten. I really never thought I would leave. And when mm-hmm. the opportunity came up to move into fourth grade, there's different challenges. Yes, there are. Yeah. But yeah. they're, they're still sweet to the extent, not at this point in the year. Now they're definitely challenging me cause I'm the extra mom, you know, they have mom at home, right. but I'm the teacher and you know, we're going to see how far we can push your buttons, which mm-hmm. I get it. I have two children, mm-hmm. um, but they're not at that middle school level. So I find still, you know, they're still sweet and innocent in fourth grade. Yeah. And my wife actually says third and fourth grade is the best grade for her to teach too. Yeah. So I, I can see that. It. And how do, you know, obviously uh, teaching and you have two teenagers at home. How, how uh, are you able to maintain an, an active lifestyle and, and continue? I pray <laughs> and I meditate Okay, and I find time to exercise. Yes. You know, I, I kind of look back over the years, people have asked me if I could have my legs back, would I want them? And my answer is still no. I can't predict what the next 10 or 20 years will bring when I'm grandparent or, you know, whatever the future mm-hmm. holds. But right now, no, um, my legs have given me this incredible platform to provide hope for so many people because mm-hmm. we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And when I think about my childhood, I could have never, ever imagined doing the things that I've done. I, I never even dreamed this big that I would travel the world, let alone running on carbon fiber. Mm-hmm prosthetic legs like that. I, it's just astonishing to me sometimes, mm. but you know, life throws us so many different twists and turns. You just have to embrace what you've been given. And, and I'm very fortunate. I, I met my soulmate. We've mm-hmm. been married 19 years. I constantly remind my children how lucky they are because we're friends and we like each other. Right. And yeah. they get a kick out of that. You know, I think when they're older and they develop their own relationships and go through what life has, mm-hmm. they'll look back and see that's what mom meant. All the ups and downs and challenges that yep, come exactly, with that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And your husband and, and you started a foundation and talk we, a little bit about the, the work that your foundation is doing. Yes. Thank you. Um, so I was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer in October of 2016 mm-hmm. and I went through straight Western medicine. I had surgery and I did radiation and, and I really adjusted my diet and I started incorporating more meditation Mm -hmm. and just trying to really do some soul searching for myself in the beginning. But I felt strong. Everything went well. And then unfortunately, the following spring, they found a spot on my spine. And immediately, my oncologist at the time, who I've now since fired, um, gave me life sentences. 
and mm. basically looked at a chart on the wall and said, well, now you have metastic, bre- metast- metastic breast cancer and you have about six to 10 years to live. And my husband and I are like, I haven't even had a PET scan. All we did was have a biopsy of the one spot in my right. spine. You don't, you know, and it was just so alarming to us how this doctor who I really liked at the time took away our hope. Right. And, and that was very alarming for us. And sure enough, I went and had a PET scan and the, bre- the cancer was gone except for that one spot. Hmm. And at yeah. that, yeah. And at that time, my husband and I said, there's so many people in the world that probably go through what we go through we want to do something. We want to help others. Mm-hmm. And so with the support of some people in our community, we set up a 501c3 nonprofit. It's mm-hmm. called Warriors with Hope. Mm-hmm. And our mission is to provide hope to those in need because I have a fantastic job. I love my job. I work mm-hmm. super hard. But along with that is I have great health insurance. So I'm very fortunate in that aspect right. that I work hard for it, but I do have good health insurance. And we also started to look into some Eastern medicine at that point. So incorporating acupuncture, supplements, really digging deep into your soul mm-hmm. and your your mind as to why the cancer came. Why is it here? It's not just cut and oh, it's not... um. It's not cut and dry where everyone's cancer is the same or the reason why it happened. And and so we've learned to incorporate all kinds of medicine. I'm a big believer in walking right down the middle of the road. Like I mentioned, that oncologist, I fired her Mm -hmm. because I didn't like how she was talking to me and treating me. I'm not a statistic. And there are radical remissions in regards to cancer that happen each and every day. And people make huge changes in their life and go and live long lives. Mm -hmm. So don't show me this chart on the wall and take away my hope. And just, yeah, exactly. And call it a doomsday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so we've been able, last year, the foundation was able to bring a young girl who's an amputee out to the amputee coalition, their national meeting. Mm-hmm. We've been able to provide prosthetics for young kids. I came to ski spec for years. Uh-huh. I think I was one of the first people that ever tried snowboarding with outriggers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So uh-huh. I get, so for quite, and then I got married and had kids and right. they took all my money and all my time. So, you know, but, um, but yeah, that's, Ma- our, that's our community work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so, and now Matthew moved to Utah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. awesome. It is awesome. And, and Jamie, how do you, um, and this is because you, because of your foundation and because of your books and all the things that you do, you encourage so many other people. What do you often, like if you're interacting with somebody that's new maybe to their disability, what kind of, you know, words of advice do you have or do you give them? The biggest thing is don't compare and go slow mm-hmm. because everyone's journey is so individual. Mm-hmm. And I think depending on where you came from, if you had a level of activity before, you're going to do fantastic. If you didn't, you're going to have to wrap your head around how can I lead a healthy life? Mm-hmm. Because being an amputee, you really want to embrace controlling your weight, controlling what you eat and just move your body. Whether you're using a wheelchair at the time or you are able ambu- ambulatory with your prosthetics and you're Mm -hmm. able to move. If you have a body, you need to use it to the best of your ability. And it took me a while to embrace that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I try and show others because I, even to this day, I ran two full marathons. Mm -hmm. So I'm the only one in the world who's ever 
of my disability class, meaning bilateral below mm-hmm. the knee that's ever ran the Boston Marathon. And I really did that in honor of some of the survivors from the bombing. Yes. And that was from the Challenge Athletes Foundation and one of their mentorships programs introducing me to some people. Yeah. And what do you remind me, what year did you do that? Uh, 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I ran the Chicago and it was interesting because through my connections and people I know, I could have just registered for Boston and ran it. Uh And I said, no, I want to run a marathon. I want to qualify myself and I want to do it. That's how I want to do it. So I ran the Chicago marathon in October of 2015 and I'm still the only woman that's ever ran the Chicago marathon. There's one bilateral amputee. Her name's Adrela De La Silva, I think she's from Brazil, Uh a beautiful woman. I've met her over the years quite a few times. She ran the New York marathon, but she had struggled really hard with her running legs and wound up putting on her walking legs. And it took her, I think, close to nine plus hours. So I'm still holding on that, you know, but I also know like when my opportunity to go to the Paralympics didn't happen, there's other young women that are going to come out one day. Yes. And they're going to crush my marathon times and I'm going to be at that finish line holding them and hugging and them. And rooting for them, right? Yeah, and rooting yeah, for them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and anything else you want to kind of share or talk about before we before we wrap up? Uh, you know, life is a journey and it mm-hmm. is what you make it. And we all have so many ups and downs. I'm, I'm very proud of myself that I got through all this cancer talk without crying because it does stink mm-hmm. and it's take away uh, a lot of the Eastern medicine we've had to pay for financially. Mm-hmm. But when people look at me, they're like, you're, you have cancer. And it's like, well, technically it's stage four and I should be dying, but I'm not going to think like that. I'm going to embrace life and I'm going to appreciate my job and my husband and even the chocolate that I like to eat each day. (laughs) You know, life is a a roller coaster of thrills and joys. And there's Mm -hmm. definitely going to be some pitfalls, but it's how you handle those pitfalls that can make a difference. And I know folks can still get the book. The books are available through Amazon and through other Amazon. resources. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and how do folks follow, also either follow you or reach out to you? Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a website. It's mm-hmm. I am Jamie, I-A-M-J-A-M-I dot com. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a website for the charity, Warriors with an S, with hope dot org. Awesome. Yeah. And I have social media handles and yeah, come out, give me a follow and, you know, let me know how life's treating you. <laughs> Well, great. Thank you very much for being my guest today, Jamie. You bet. Nice to meet you, Sean. Thank you. 